Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. As I was waiting for Scrivener to finish updating before sitting down to write this introduction, I idly thumbed through an anthology of Arthur Machen's stories and glanced at the last page of The White People, a story we discussed all the way back in episode three. My eyes fell upon the concluding phrase, wonder is of the soul. It's an ambiguous line. It could mean that the soul is inclined to wonder, or perhaps that the soul is constituted in wonder, or vice versa. It's not clear in context. Whatever else it might mean, though, I take it to be a statement of Machen's lifelong project. He was about wonder, and he was about soul. He spent a lifetime chasing that wonder and recreating its feeling in us through his weird fictions. The topic of today's show, Machen's aesthetic treatise Hieroglyphics, A Note Upon Ecstasy in Literature, chases wonder by other means. It is a theory of art founded upon wonder, or ecstasy. He uses the words almost interchangeably. Hieroglyphics makes ecstasy the indispensable desideratum of art. In Hieroglyphics, Machen starts out defining art by what it isn't. Machen had no time for romance, or politics, or the sports pages, or the society pages. These are things that belong to life, and for Machen, life is, by and large, a dreary affair. No, what matters most to him is a sense of ecstasy. Ecstasy is the atmosphere in which Homer and Poe live. Without it, there can be no lyric poetry. Neither ritual nor reverence can find a home in a world without ecstasy. Machen goes so far as to define literature as that part of writing that traffics in ecstasy. All else is artifice. Artifice may be ingenious, exciting, heart-rending, entertaining, but without ecstasy, it is as different from art as chalk is from cheese. Ecstasy itself, Machen describes as, quote, desire of the unknown, sense of the unknown, rapture, adoration, mystery, wonder, withdrawal from the common life. Though he never pretends that something so ineffable as ecstasy could ever be defined in these words, or any others. Machen represents a type that has stalked through many episodes of Weird Studies. A fan de siècle decadent for whom art is greatly superior to life, and in whom we find a curious mixture of sin and sanctity. He's a bit of a snob, as you'd expect of such a dandified fellow, but Machen's aesthetic theory is also a solid basis for appreciating writers like H.P. Lovecraft or Philip K. Dick or Shirley Jackson, or even artists much further down the food chain, even all the way at the bottom, in amongst the bargain DVDs and $1 paperbacks at your local half-price books. In the most unlikely place, when you're least expecting it, you might round a corner and step into a little shaft of ecstasy breaking in from somewhere, a hint of a beyond, and a once upon a time. Back in episodes 20 and 21, J.F. and I investigated the Philip K. Dick line, the symbols of the divine initially show up at the trash stratum. If there were a weird studies tarot deck, the trash stratum would be one of its arcana. Machen's hieroglyphics allows us to understand Dick's line a bit better. The wonder that is of the soul breaks in from the outside, from somewhere else. When it does, the soul becomes a soul. In the same way, the divine breaks into the trash stratum from the outside, from the pleroma where Dick's Gnostic god resides, a divine invasion. And when it does, the world will at last become what it truly is. I'm afraid we'll have to wait to see what that's like. 
For now, we have art to show us the never-ending apocalypse of the real. Wow, somehow just thinking about Machen has gotten me into some high-flown rhetoric. Never-ending apocalypse of the real indeed. All of which makes it challenging to find the right way to transition to talking about our Patreon. One of those earthbound practical considerations of the sort that Machen despised. It will come as no surprise to learn that he was impoverished for much of his life. It's hard to imagine Machen bringing himself to countenance the vulgarity of a Patreon pitch. I, however, have no such qualms. Give us your money. We're going to blow it all on absinthe, rare perfumes, and Tartarus press hardbacks. That's my pitch. Okay, thanks for listening. Now on to our conversation. Recording this episode while we are still waiting for the final results of the U.S. election. And you listeners in the future already know how it all turned out. And uh, that is exactly the kind of consideration that Arthur Machen despises the <laughs> timely, earthbound, connected to the news cycle and the to him, trivial, ephemeral, and purely contingent doings of our days. He wishes instead to fix his eyes upon the distant horizon of the eternal. That's beautifully said. Thank you. Uh, in Ligotti's fiction, there's a, a beautiful line, which I think I've quoted before, which kind of expresses something similar. He writes, the only value of this world lay in its power at certain times to suggest another. <laughs> which uh that's pretty great which you know when that. you're when you're taking a walk and you see that i don't know that little arrangement of physical matter a tree a, an old fence post i don't know, i always go back to the goddamn fence post it's because i saw there's a fence post when i take a walk that i keep seeing and this little scene that's completely inconsequential and yet just like a vortex sucks you into another place another world Without leaving this world, that's the weird thing. It's not a dualistic thing where this world is false. It's like the matrix and you go into this. It's just that this world is constantly evoking something more than itself, right? Yeah. That's, I think that's what Machen is getting at with the idea of the sacramental universe, but we, we'll get to that eventually. But we're, yeah. we are getting our business <laughs> yes. entirely out of order here. What are we doing today? We're, uh, <laughs> we're talking. We haven't even said what we're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah. we don't, yeah, and we should probably reintroduce Arthur Machen for listening who didn't listen to episode two, was it? Episode three uh, on the white people. So today we're exploring a wonderful little book published initially, I think it was published in 1899 or was it 1900? Mm, I think it was just over the boundary of the 20th century, but I couldn't tell you which exact year. Yeah, it was written in the late 1890s, published a little later, but basically- It is a very fantasiacla kind of book. It is. So uh, the book's called Hieroglyphics, A Note Upon Ecstasy in Literature. And Arthur Machen was, a, I guess, a weird fiction writer, a decadent writer of the late 19th century, early 20th in England. He was a Welshman, born in the 1860s, died in 1947, I believe. And he wrote some foundational weird tales, one of which, The White People, we discussed on episode three of, of Weird Studies. For me, one of my great, great heroes. And this book is not a fiction, although it's framed with a fiction. It is, in a sense, a novel, Um, but it's essentially a treatise on the nature of literature and, by extension, the nature of art. And those of you who have read Reclaiming Art will immediately sense the uh, undeniable influence of Machen as we start to explore these ideas. Although, I should say, to disclose all, that I discovered this book... After the first draft of Reclaiming Art, and I was- Did your heart sink to your boots? It did at first. I was like, (laughs) why did I write this book? It was already been written. (laughs) But then I realized that, well, 
if it's true, then you'd expect others to have seen it. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. So beautiful, amazing book that we've been talking about doing since the very beginning of the show, I think. It was on our, our yes. very, very first wish list. Yeah. 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 No, I remember it came up, in fact, in our discussion of the white people, because that story, which is almost a novella, it's a long, short story, mm -hmm. has something of the same framing conceit. The story proper is the long central section called The Green Book, which purports to be the diary of a young girl who has been unknowingly seduced into fairy. The white people refers to the fair folk. And the framing, which is very brief, a short section at the beginning and a shorter section at the end, is a description of almost the identical scenario that you get at the beginning of Hieroglyphics, which is an ordinary sort of fellow discovers a literary hermit named Ambrose in The White People and finds his company engaging because Ambrose is forever coming up with fanciful theories and, you know... Eccentric uh, ideas about... Yeah. Queer notions, yeah. Right. yeah. And uh, in The White People, Ambrose largely dwells upon the theme of sin. Mm -hmm. and he says, nobody understands what sin is. What sin truly is, is ecstasy. And he defines ecstasy in that story as a withdrawal from the common life. And he has, of course, a good deal more to say about the subject. Very interestingly suggests that saints and sinners, true sinners, are alike insofar as both are chasing ecstasy. But whereas one is chasing the ecstasy that belongs, um, actually, to put it in terms of our Empress episode, which is, I think, two episodes back, the saint is pursuing the ecstasy that goes with what the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot calls sacred magic. Right. Sin, as Machen understands it, and as he puts it in the mouth of his character Ambrose, is the ecstasy that pertains to... Well, almost the same thing, the ecstasy of God and the angels, but illicitly yeah. uh, taken. Appropriated. Uh, taken by force, appropriated, yeah. Yeah, yeah. contained in a human frame, which makes right. it demonic, yeah. That's the way I, at least, I, that I understood it. It is right. it's incredibly ambiguous, we should... <laughs> it is, yeah. and because, you know, it's literature. It's not a philosophical treatise, and hieroglyphics kind of is, or at least a, a treatise on aesthetics. But nevertheless... The two books have a lot in common, not least of which the foundational emphasis on ecstasy and the strong implication of a certain, I don't know, amorality of ecstasy. I mean, in the white people, Machen qua Ambrose is pretty clear that true saints and true sinners have more in common with one another than either does with just the common run of humanity. Yeah. Ordinary people who are preoccupied with their daily affairs with, you know, making their living and pursuing their little pleasures. Saints and sinners have more in common with one another than either has to do with that kind of person. Right. And in hieroglyphics, Machen says much the same thing in altered case. Instead of talking about persons, he's talking about literature. But he says that you know, true literature is that which pertains to ecstasy in whatever form. In a way, this book can feel a little bit dogmatic or restricting in its thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But in another way, it's actually very open because it doesn't insist that ecstasy have really many qualities or pass many tests other than is it a withdrawal from the common life? Right. And beyond that, it doesn't have much to do with anything we conventionally mean by morality. It doesn't have much to do with our idea of certainly the ideas that are very commonplace now, that for art to be worthy of our contemplation, the artist has to be worthy of our respect. Machen doesn't give a shit about any of that. Or the idea that the art should contain ideas or opinions that are acceptable, right, to 
some right. particular ideological standpoint. That's also right. something he rejects. There's a line where he says, the conscious opinions of a writer are simply not worth tuppence in the court of literature. Yeah. So he's talking about a vision of the aesthetic, a vision of art that completely liberates art from any entanglement with the prosaic mundane concerns of life. Another line is, uh, art and life are two very separate spheres. Mm -hmm. Uh, So by life, he means what we understand as existence, right? Oh, I got to do my tax return. I have to go and buy some food. Um, That person is an asshole, that sort of thing. Uh, And then he says that true art, as opposed to artifice, and he does draw that distinction very starkly at times, although it gets nuanced. True art always calls us to a reimagining of our world in light of this bigger reality. Right. Not an other world in the sense that it's a separate, like a matrix style or like the, the astral plane or something like that, but just that everything in our world becomes in art a symbol that suggests the existence of a, a kind of objective more, capital M, that he associates with this feeling of ecstasy. And that's the other thing is that he's not saying that good art gives you an ecstatic feeling. That's not what he's saying. Yes. That's important because then you could make an argument that it comes down to taste, right? If I get ecstatic when I watch My Little Pony, which would be really fucked up. Sorry, I'm just imagining a middle-aged man getting ecstatic, quote unquote, watching My Little Pony. Hey, don't Um, knock until you try it. (laughs) uh, But that's not what he's saying. Ecstasy for him is, is both a subjective state, of course, but more importantly, it is an objective reality. So at, at several points in the book, he refers to art as giving us, quote, real essential knowledge. Ecstasy is the moment where the human being sees beyond. And that is not a subjective experience. It is, but it's the subjective experience of a reality. So he's talking about art as a conduit to a bigger reality than what we have access to in the day-to-day. Yeah. In that respect, actually, you could compare him to Colin Wilson, Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, totally. Because Colin yeah. Wilson's whole thing, and particularly in the book The Occult, which we talked about at the beginning of this year, yeah, he keeps coming back to this idea of faculty acts, a faculty that human beings share with animals and that humans have, to some extent, civilized themselves out of having. But we have it nonetheless. And he defines faculty acts as the ability to, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but our ability to sense that's something more. Right. And he has a neat personal story that he introduces to explain what he means by that something more. He talks about how when he was a child, he would see a lake or a river, a body of water glimmering off over there. And he would be filled with this wild yearning. And he was like, but what was it a yearning for? What would I have done with the water? Would I have drunk it? Would I have bathed in it? No, it's like that sort of getting at what I was after, but not really. What I was really after is like, I wanted that something more that the beauty of the body of water glittering in the sun represented. Yeah. And as we discussed on the show we did on Colin Wilson's The Occult, faculty X and the aesthetic faculty are closely related, probably one in the same right? Mm. Um, That it has to do with the aesthetic qualities of the world. It has to do with how a particular arrangement of physical matter (laughs) or a particular set of events or whatever it is that can constitute an aesthetic moment calls us out of the kind of five senses world and into this world that transcends it without necessarily being, like I said, just another world where you could be prosaic, you know, like the Smurf world or something. It's not like that. It's more like just showing you that there is more to this world at any moment than you usually see. Um, Mm. It's more than that too, but I just, that's just, for some reason, that just feels important to point out. There's a passage in Machen, actually right at the end, which I think really kind of throws this into a kind of a good light. It's an appendix. And I find actually the appendix. It feels like just snippets from the draft that he couldn't fit anywhere. And he kind of just, because there's several little sections in the appendix. Yeah. 
but it's got some of the best stuff. It does, it. yeah. Well, some of the boldest um, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Including his assertion that he doesn't even argue. He just plunks it out there. He was like, basically, to understand art, you must be a Catholic. Yeah. Like everything that I have said, like the ability to appreciate art as ecstasy, art as ecstasy is inherently Catholic. And he doesn't argue that, but he just throws it out there with an air of provocation. Yeah. If I had written it, I would have added the words, that's right, assholes, at yes. the end. <laughs> um, or or a what a load of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something I like about Machen, too, is that he is able sometimes to say what a load of bullshit. He does. Well, I mean, in a sense, the framing of the book, because as you mentioned, this is all framed as the ideas of a fictional hermit, he's kind of distancing himself a little bit from the content of the book in that way. The framing probably allowed him to be even more bold or dogmatic than he would have been if he was speaking in his own name. But anyways. So the passage in question, he says, it seems to me that primitive man, Homeric man, medieval man, man indeed, almost to our own day, when the school board and other things have got a hold of him, had such an unconscious but all-pervading, all-influencing conviction that he was a wonderful being, descended of a wonderful ancestry, and surrounded by mysteries of all kinds, that even the smallest details of his life partook of the ruling ecstasy. He was so sure that he was miraculous that it seemed that no part of his life could escape from the miracle, so that to him, every meal became a sacrament. And I had the same passage in front of me. <laughs> I was like, I'll read, I'll read it after, but you, you read exactly that. I love that nice, passage. Yeah. Nice. And this is coming after a passage where he's describing like his imagination of a primitive person, like a primeval person, somebody from a prehistoric age enjoying a simple meal by the edge of a stream. He writes, of course, primitive man had moods in which rapture seemed to embrace everything, to invest every detail of existence with its own singular and inexplicable glory. A meal by the seashore, the dry wood flaming and crackling on the sand, the roasting goat's flesh, the honey-sweet wine, dark and almost as glorious as the sea itself— a mere dinner of half-savages, one might think, but it too seems to have its solemnity and its inner meaning. He says, basically, if you can live in that primeval world where something as simple as goat's flesh roasted over an open fire and a skin of wine can fill you to the brim with that thing that faculty X connects us with. You know, basically what Machen is doing is he's imagining a kind of Edenic state where human beings are full of faculty X. Yeah. But we don't have that. What we have is poetry. We have lyric poetry. Lyric poetry is what we have to perhaps stoke that faculty, to connect ourselves to that ecstasy that is ours by right, but which we seem to have fallen away from. Perhaps there's some kind of Adam's fall thing in all this. Maybe that's why he thinks that you have to be a Catholic to understand art properly. his idea about being a Catholic has to do with Catholicity, small c, but that, and that, that ties into the sacramental. So I, I think he's, I would agree with what he says there, but of course it doesn't mean that you have to be like <laughs> an actual Roman Catholic or Anglo-Catholic as he was to do art. Obviously that's absurd, but he but says that- It's the yeah. idea of a sacramental reality. Exactly. What he's talking about as his imagining of primeval humanity is- one in which human beings just habitually, customarily, unselfconsciously live in a sacramental reality where existence itself is a sacrament. Yeah. And, and I think there's uh, some anthropological support for that sort of thing. Uh, right. You, yeah, there is. Anthropology of quote unquote primitive cultures. 
And I suppose it's the idea of a sacramental reality in Catholic theology that he's connecting to that. That's at least how I understand him to be making that assertion. But I want to just um, point out a weird kind of double move he's making, because the book begins with a discussion of prosaic mundane events, like articles from the newspaper. And he's talking about like normal stuff, like a, a gambler gambling or a, a person opening up a shop, starting a new business. And then he points out that although these activities feel completely mundane and earthbound, to the person experiencing them, there is an element of that weird mythic dimension to it. There's a poetic dimension to life that we're usually unaware of. And what great art does is it brings out the poetic dimension that was there already all the time. So when you're starting a new business, you're embarking upon a quest and you're living through an experience that is analogous to that of the knight setting out, you know, to yeah. fight the dragon. But it's just that you're so caught up in the little details that you may not be conscious of what is actually going on in your life, which is a big archetypal event. But Art is the means by which, or the aesthetic in general, is the means by which we can access that dimension, which is there, is still there, but we're unaware of it. I actually invented a term. I don't know if I invented this term. I did invent it because I never saw it anywhere else, but because I found that being unconscious of this is, is too strong. It's not that we're unconscious, it's that we're disconscious. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm, nice. Like, when a gambler walks into a casino just that unknown that he's stepping into has a kind of archetypal or imaginal dimension. In one sense, he's fully aware of that. That's why he's gambling. Yeah. But in another sense, he would never describe it that way. Right. Uh, but art is what allows us to see that that's what's going on, even in our modern fallen state. It's always there, but we're disconscious. We're not willing to embrace it fully. It's like we have that little hint of ecstasy in our lives and we don't... It's like a little thread. If we were to pull on it, the whole thing would come apart and we'd be crossing into this bigger world. But we choose to remain ensconced and trapped in our all-too-human interpretation of it. And one thing he does that I loved in this book is that he really distorts the idea of the human. So we tend to think, especially we moderns, we tend to think that we know exactly what a human being is. So therefore, if I describe a scene to you, like a man opens a shop on uh, such and such street. Okay, so this is a guy like me who's doing this and he's putting his business together. But he's like, no, like whenever we assume that we know what a person is, we're losing the most essential mystery. You know, there's a quote from another, mm. from one of his stories is, man is made a mystery for mysteries and vision. So like, mm. we have to, first of all, to understand any of this, you have to kind of realize that even our ideas about what we are, are themselves completely rife with mystery and the unknown. Mm. And, and that's important because that breaks up one of the binds that make it very hard to take his idea seriously. But if you right. realize that we don't know what a person is or what a human being is or what consciousness is, and once you accept that, then all of a sudden there's more room to maneuver these ideas in. Um, there's yeah. a great passage where he talks about human nature. Man sounds a very simple predicate as you utter it. You imagine that you understand its significance perfectly well. But when you begin to refine a little, and to bring in distinctions and to carry propositions to their legitimate bounds, you find that you have undertaken the definition of that which is essentially indefinite and probably indefinable. And after all, we need not pitch on this term or that. There is no need to select man as offering any especial difficulty. For, I take it, that the truth is that all human knowledge is subject to the same disadvantage, the same doubts and reservations. Omnia exunt in mysterium. All things end in mystery." Uh, so he says, omnia exunt in mysterium was an old scholastic maxim. And the only people who have always a plain answer for a plain question are the pseudoscientists, the people who think that one can solve the enigma of the universe with a box of chemicals. Nice. So the mystery is truly all pervasive, as you were saying in that quote. Like, yep. like it goes right to the core. That's what I call in my book, Radical Mystery. And it's not, Radical Mystery is not an opinion. It's not like, I think the world is radical. It actually is. Okay, that's actually what yeah, the world is. That's no matter the truth. Who, yeah, that's the truth. So once that's clear, then all activity, all human activity, even the most civilized, even the most mundane, 
normal, ordinary, becomes rife with that same bizarre primal mystery. And I think that what you just pointed out about Machen's aesthetic theory actually saves his aesthetic theory from being just some asshole's opinion. Yeah. Actually, this time through hieroglyphics, I kind of bogged down in the middle, partly because he just insists on talking shit about Jane Austen. And I love Jane Austen. And Thackeray. Thackeray. But he really goes in on Jane Austen. Yes, he does. Um, and, you know, at the end of the book, the last, the sixth chapter, now that's to say before the appendix, he makes sure to get one last elbow <laughs> in. And every time I read this part of the book, I'm just like, bullshit. I'm just saying, if you're going to let that kind of stuff get in the way... And I agree that that's one of the flaws of this book is that it dates itself and it um, it limits itself with that sort of opining. Um, mm -hmm. If you let that stuff get in the way, you're not gonna you're not gonna finish the book, and that's that would be a real pity. Yeah, it would. Very true. I mean, like the, uh, an example of a phrase that I wrote bullshit in the margin on the people in the English novels, and he's talking about Jane Austen, are in no sense remote. They are merely dull. They cannot be remote indeed, since they are not human beings at all, but merely the representatives of certain superficial manners and tricks of manner which were common in the rural England of 90 years ago. Which, if true, would mean that there would be no reason to read Jane Austen now, he's saying in effect, that the commonplace doings of provincial life in the age of the Napoleonic Wars, that that is of interest to people of that time and perhaps people nostalgic for that time, but of no relevance to the eternal, which for him is the touchstone of ecstasy. Yeah. And yet here we are, you know, a hundred years on, more than a hundred years on from him writing this and Jane Austen's books are as relevant to us now as ever. Clearly there is something in it. And I want to get back to what you were saying. You know, you're talking about like, we don't know what human beings are. He says dismissively that these are just dull people, hardly human beings at all, but representatives of superficial manners. He's assuming he knows what a person is. And yet he's sort of saying that like, you know, with his example of like a shopkeeper opening a shop or even somebody betting five pounds on a racehorse is in a sense questing forth on an adventure into yeah. the unknown. They may not be aware of that. I love your coinage, disconscious. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be disconscious of what they're doing. They feel the thrill of the quest, but they're not actually framing it in terms of what it is. They feel it, but they're not thinking about it. And also Austin is burying the ecstatic perhaps beneath right. this kind of uh, cover of convention and stuff, but that's kind of where the ecstasy in Austen lies. Like, I've only read a couple of Austen's books, but I've always felt that what she's doing is, is she's showing us a closed little world, but she's constantly showing us the limits of that world. And mm -hmm. by showing us the limits, she's hinting at the existence of something outside. Yes. And so in that, the, the ecstasy lies there. So the fault yes. is not with Austen, but with Machen's failure to see the ecstatic in Machen, in, in, in right. Austen. And right. that doesn't discredit, obviously, uh, Machen's theory, because of course he was just a guy, right? So he had his opinions. Yeah. And right. like, he hit on some kind of gnosis, I think, anyways. And, uh, I and, would agree. And of course he tried to fit it into his time and place. And in doing so, there are these, like one thing that really pissed me off. It was his bagging on the French. It's like ridiculous. I was going to ask you about that because he says like, oh, the French have shopkeepers too, but they're not like English shopkeepers. They are just interested in money. Whereas the English shopkeeper is involved in a quest into the unknown. Right. I bet you wrote bullshit in the margin of that. Yeah. Well, I thought it for sure. <laughs> I'm not going to write in this, the margins of this beautiful book that you gave me, by the way. No, I, when I say right in the margins, I mean taking notes on my fucking Kindle. Yeah, right. Yes, I should point out that Tartarus Press, which is a wonderful small press, it does artful hardback publications of weird fiction. They have a wonderful collection of Machen books. They have recently, within the last couple of years, published a gorgeous edition of Hieroglyphics. And I checked this morning, it's still in print. So you should all run out and buy a copy. But the problem with it is that my copy of it is so nice, I don't dare read it. So it's sort of like uh, the bourgeois 
living room. Yeah, with, right. Uh, <laughs> with with the plastic. plastic covers on all the chairs and everything, and nobody gets to sit in there. Yeah. So I took notes on my Kindle. Is what I I'm read saying. it at my desk or at my work table with a lamp, and I it just doesn't leave the table. So I'm keeping it in pretty much pristine condition. I've read it twice now, and so now I'm going like to put it on the shelf. I like and, to imagine that you're doing so wearing a fez and a velvet smoking jacket. Yeah, or a. Um, Wouldn't that be appropriate? Or a hazardous materials suit, like a hazmat. (laughs) There's a line I'm looking for. uh, Maybe you can find it on your Kindle because I don't have, I didn't write it down. I didn't note it. The part where he's- About the French. About the French. It's the part where he's talking about the line from the Bible that he happened to see in a French translation of the Bible. Oh, yes, that's right. Could Could you find that so I can just- Here it is. Found it right away. This is the advantage of Kindle. But the irony is that it's in one of those, frankly, uh, racist uh, <laughs> passages about the French. Like, he really hates French people. It's yeah, ridiculous. It's true. It's yeah. weird. And yet, he's obviously fluent in French. And um, at one moment, he compares a line from the Bible translated into English and French. He basically uses it as an example to show us the same sentence, in one case, giving us the sense of ecstasy, in the other case, completely not doing it. And I agree. I think he's right there. So Phil had to find the passage for us because I um, I only have a print copy and I didn't note it. So he's going to read it. Because it's such a nice book. You, could, you couldn't, you know, like of write in pencil in the margin. Usually I write so, in pencil. If it's a soft so cover. Can't, yeah, so now you can't fucking find anything. See, technology wins. Kindle is therefore better One for technology. than a print book. Yeah. Um, Tartarus Press. <laughs> so this is what he writes i was passing along new oxford street the other day and i happened to look into a shop which displays bibles in all languages and i glanced at the french version open at the seventh chapter of the book of proverbs i saw the words un jeune homme dépourvu de bon sens and then lower down comme un boeuf à la boucherie sorry perfect i'm not saying this nearly as beautifully as you would jf and it was some considerable time before I realized that these phrases translated a young man void of understanding and as an ox goeth to the slaughter. Now, you notice that these are in every way commonplace examples. There is nothing extraordinarily poetical in either phrase as it stands in the authorized version, either a young man void of understanding or as an ox goeth to the slaughter. I might have made the contrast much more violent by choosing a passage from the Song of Songs or Ecclesiastes, and I wonder how, therefore, with angels and archangels would go into French. But isn't the gulf astounding between void of understanding and dépourvu de bon sens? Yet the meaning of the French is really the same as the meaning of the English. Logically, I should think the two phrases are exactly equivalent. And yet, dot, 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 well, we know perfectly well that dépourvu de bon sens in no way renders that noble and austere simplicity that we reverence in the English text. <laughs> but, okay, so that sounds, no, he's making it sounds an interest- pompous. He's making an essential point, which is that it's not so much a judgment on the two languages. It's a judgment on two translations, however, because I was uh, raised on the, I think, the standard French translation of Bible, which I can't remember what it's called now because I haven't looked at it in decades. But if you compare, and it, it is a, a staid, like lame translation, I think. A business-like yeah. It's just very clerical in the wrong sense of the word. It's very much like uh, a religion that has become way too comfortable with its way too uh, almost fossilized. It feels that way to me. The King James translation specifically is one of the, you know, we talk about rifts. That yeah. translation is just filled with rifts. For some mm. reason, I mean, it's at least the Elizabethan era, which I think was a high point for the innovation and the development of the English language, obviously, for all kinds of mm. reasons. But right. it is just filled with these beautiful ways of rendering the ideas. Like a void of understanding is a rift. It's not just mm. uh, dépourvu de bon sens, which means uh, deprived of good sense. It's a void. There's a void yes. in there. There's the yes. image of a void, of a hole. And also, what is it? What was it? As a, as a, as an ox goeth to the slaughter. As an ox goeth to the slaughter, as opposed to like a bull at the butchers, 
where's the rift? The rift, I think, is well, you could we could spend hours on the line as the ox goeth to the slaughter. But one of the things that makes it a rift is that we don't know whether the ox is being forced there or is going of its own volition. Good point. It's tra- It's moving towards the slaughter. So that's what opens up the poetic space. That's what makes those lines. Po- that's what we mean, I think, when we say poetic. And it's what is sacramental in the sense that it calls us to a more, a kind of capitalized more that completely transforms even the mundane interpretation, even the, the kind of basic meaning of it. So I have other, I have examples of this in my book, like a classic easy example is the line from Hamlet, I will speak daggers to her, right? Mm. So in one sense, you say, oh, what he means is he'll, he'll say, he, he'll be really, you know. You say some real mean shit. He'll, he'll be very mean to her. But in another way, it's making this analogy between words and weapons. It's mm-hmm. giving us the image literally of a man vomiting daggers. Like that's yeah. in there. It, Which it, is it, an amazing image. Yeah, the metaphor doesn't, and it's, it's a reference also to the book of Revelation, now that I think of it, when Jesus returns with a second coming, he comes with swords coming out of his mouth. That's how he's described in the book of Revelation. Seriously? Yeah. I think it's five I've swords. Re- I've never read the book of Revelation, so. Uh, yeah. That's weird that's, fiction. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. man, that's a crazy detail. Yeah. When he comes, he, he has swords coming from his mouth. Of course, then again, it's like, oh, the swords represent the Logos, the word coming from the mouth of, you know, the word of God. God and right. all that. But also, it's just this bizarre, surreal image that yeah. the metaphor wouldn't work without. It's right. kind of like, that's kind of the reality. It reminds me of what we were saying about, when we were talking about the Sandman, of how kids see the imaginal. Like, if you mm. were to read those lines to a kid, the kid would just see the guy with swords coming out of his mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And that wouldn't be wrong, because the kid would be seeing the imaginal. And that's what right. makes those lines rifty as opposed to just lame ass accountant kind of language that we, you know, (laughs) that the French translation uses almost throughout. Yeah. There's two things that I take away from this. One, it's a good example of how Machen can be hitting you with a fairly profound truth while at the same time wrapping it up in bullshit. So he's hitting you with a profound truth by way of throwing an elbow at the French. Yeah. That's exactly his point, though. The opinions of a writer don't matter at all. That's he's yeah, kind of proof, exactly. he's making he's his own case. He's that for yeah, us. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the deep point that he's making is, and to me, this is a very deep point, that the propositional meaning of an utterance is not the same thing as its aesthetic import, as the beauty that emanates from it. Right. Just as a description of sipping your morning cup of coffee is in no way a replacement for the actual experience of sipping your morning cup of coffee. And yet this idea that we can replace experience, sensuous experience, or the beauty that is in language, the beauty that is in the authorized version of the Bible that Machen is reading from, or the beauty that is in lyric poetry, It's akin to the idea that that beauty and the propositional meaning that we can derive from those words are going to be in some sense identical. Right. And he's he's trying to get us to understand those things are different. Now, this brings up another thing that I wanted to mention, which is like, where is music and all this? Because, of course, I'm going to ask that question because, you know, I'm a musicologist. But he says at the beginning, I think in the first chapter, My interest is in literature and especially the most distilled aspect of literature, which is lyric poetry. Some might say that music is the highest form of art, and I'm not going to argue against them, except I'm just going to state that I think that it's lyric poetry. Needless to say, I'm reading this from the point of view of a musician who's like, no, lyric poetry is great. Not not as good as music, but it's fine. Uh, And to me, when he is talking about these things, he is actually often talking about musical aspects of language. That becomes increasingly clear as he goes. At the end, when he talks about how language begins a song, he he makes that point. That's where you're going, right? Well, actually, I was just going to use the example of as an ox goeth to the slaughter, that it has a tripping rhythm to it, quite apart from what the words mean. Yeah. But meaning is not the name of the game. The meaning is like the shark fin that you see above the water. The shark is the bit that you don't see, 
that's not the meaning. That's something else, something more. He actually uses our word at one point. He says he talks about significance in that sense, right? It's what- Yeah, the, that's right. It's not the signification, but the significance. So you'll, yeah. you'll have one layer that is signification, significative. It tells you, like, for example, I will speak daggers to her means I will be mean to her. I will say mean things to her. And then you have this other layer, which is the significant is what is the significance of this line in terms of the image that it evokes, in terms of how it relates to other events that have nothing to do with this particular plot, how it connects with the cosmos. That's at the level of the significance that the sign becomes a symbol. Machen has some really interesting things to say about symbols in this book, that symbols are signs that refer you to something that is off stage, something that you can't see. So by their nature, symbols call us to a bigger world, a sacramental world. And symbolism, according to him, is, quote, the speech of art. It is like symbolism is art. So whether you're talking about music or uh, literary art or whatever, poetry, whatever, it's all about symbol. The way that I've developed that idea in my writing was to argue that a symbol is simply a, a normal sign that has been dislodged from its usual normal context, its normal network of meaning, in order to signify, for one moment, signify nothing, and then to signify a whole bunch of new stuff, right? right. So that, that's kind of the sacramental. It's that everything refers to something else in a kind of a Indra's net kind of way. Mm. That's what all good art does. And whether it's, you know, if Jane Austen's still being read today, it's probably because she's doing that too. Okay, so one thing I want to look back to is a passage where he's describing his hypothetical primeval man enjoying a crude meal and finding in it a kind of ecstasy. And he says that such a person will have an unconscious but all-pervading, all-influencing conviction that he was a wonderful being, descended of a wonderful ancestry and surrounded by mysteries of all kinds. And what I found interesting about that is the idea that the world is, if not good, is full in this way. Yeah. It's a world of fullness. The human being is also understood as a creature of fullness. Indeed, if you're understanding this idea of a sacramental reality, it could not be any other way because the human being will always be completely in and of that world, this, I think, more modern separation that takes place, subject-object separation, whereby we come to understand the world as a sort of container and ourselves as like ball bearings rolling around inside of it. Mm. That is not the sacramental vision of reality that Machen is after. Yes, absolutely. The idea of fullness is super important when thinking about what this term sacramental means. Indeed, James Machen, I don't know if that's how he pronounces his name. He might pronounce it Machen, M-A-C-H-I-N, who is a friend of the show, as it turns out, sent us Weird Fiction in Britain, 1880-1939. It's a wonderful, wonderful book on exactly that. But at the beginning, in the introduction, he distinguishes between two types of weird fiction, the one concerned with emptiness and the other one with fullness. So, quote, uh, for Benjamin Noyes, 
and Timothy S. Murphy, the weird can be inflationary, after Carl Freeman, exposing the reader to the omniferous universe, or deal in impoverishment, after Samuel Beckett, offering harrowing glimpses of the shivering void at the heart of things. Mm. Noyce and Murphy also observe that both effects can be accommodated within S.T. Joshi's claim that the weird fiction has a capacity for refashioning of the reader's view of the world. The British weird fiction discussed in this book certainly tilts to the former, the inflationary, rather than the latter, which reflects the post-Lovecraftian nihilism of writers like Thomas Ligotti. According to Friedman, this inflationary valence of weird fiction, or specifically the genres that compose weird fiction, inclines, quote, in various ways to suggest reality to be richer, larger, stranger, more complex, more surprising, and indeed weirder than common sense would suppose. This iteration of the weird resonates with Machen's own thesis on literary theory, hieroglyphics, and note upon ecstasy in literature, in which he argues that good literature is an exercise in ecstatic revelation of the numinous, with a concomitant imperative for, quote, a withdrawal from the common life and the common consciousness. The inflationary weird explains how it can appear on occasion in texts that cannot be accommodated into the horror genre usually associated with the mode. So, yeah, so two forms of weirdness we've come upon. According to James Mockin, who's drawing on the work of others here, there are two ways you can go. And again, that corresponds to the distinction that Arthur Mockin makes at the beginning of the white people between sin and sanctity. One path leads to fullness. One path leads to impoverishment. One path leads to a universe that is sacramental, full, a plenitude, a pleroma, right? To use the Greek term. And the other one leads to a void, a nothing, which is also weird, right? They're both weird, but they're very different in their, uh, at least in their affective resonances. You know, something I really find interesting in the passage you read is that the distinction between the um what are the words again? Inflationary? Inflationary. Well, uh, literature of inflation, literature of impoverishment, I think is how yeah. I took it. Yeah. I found it interesting that he kind of historicizes inflation and impoverishment in terms of like inflation being the mode of someone like Arthur Machen, the mode of fullness or the movement towards fullness and the contrary motion towards impoverishment being a kind of post-Lovecraftian, Beckettian sort of modern move. And this is getting to something that I wanted to say. This is a uh, hooking up with a motif that's come back again and again in the show, starting with the early episode we did on Lisa Ruddock's When Nothing is Cool, which is the, the modern understanding of the human as a kind of, as vermin, right. as uh as a contingent creature in an uncaring universe, that we are bugs skittering around to be squashed by capricious forces we don't understand and deserving of no better fate. You know, as a teacher, I see something that disturbs me greatly among my students, which is the extraordinary prevalence of depression. Now, I am myself a person of depression. I've suffered many episodes of depression in my life, as I've repeatedly commented on in the show. So I'm not saying this from a position of uh, presumed superiority or much less censure, but it is just something you see in your kids, the kids that you teach. It just hurts to see it. How many kids, kids, I mean, these are adults I'm working with, but you know, how many of my students are afflicted by this terrible conviction of worthlessness, mm -hmm. their own personal worthlessness. And in as much as I said that in any real understanding of reality, the self is understood as coextensive with, in, indeed consubstantial with reality, right? not merely as ball bearings rolling around in a big container, mm -hmm. then necessarily that attitude goes with an idea that like, I'm not full, I lack fullness, and so does the universe. It's an epidemic of depression that seems to proceed from a conviction of impoverishment. Yes. And as much as depression can be attributed to neurological factors and that sort of thing, there is no doubt that 
your environment and the assumptions, the metaphysical assumptions under which you operate can influence that too. I mean, yeah. it, it's not just a coincidence that we have more and more kids who are prone to depression. There's something going on in our way of thinking that would exactly. in, that would nurture that type of affliction. Yeah. 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 It's the worldview that is the absolute 180 degree opposite from what Machen is talking about. It is a worldview that insists upon the omnipotence of facts. It is a worldview that insists upon utility above all, a worldview that insists upon the meaning of our life given by our productivity, our status as little packets of productive labor. Mm -hmm. And it is a profoundly disempowering, I mean, disempowering is like almost a ludicrous word to use for this. It is a way of thinking that certainly cuts us off from ecstasy in the sense that Machen understands it. It cuts us off from an ability to touch art and touch the mysteries that art embodies. It cuts us ultimately off from our own humanity. It is a worldview that at first glance, is merely ugly and philistine. You know, Machen has many memorable passages in this book where he talks about Macaulay, for example, who insists that Plato and Aristotle have contributed nothing to our modern comfort and convenience and therefore should be understood as being more or less worthless. Yeah. Assuming that there's a certain kind of propositional meaning whose cash value is borne out by its uh, utility in the world of facts and affairs. And that idea that that is what matters in a piece of writing is obviously antithetical to everything that we've discussed, like back when we were talking about the variant translations of the Bible, understanding how that episode allows him to talk about how what is beautiful is not identical with what is the propositional content that you can extract from an utterance. It is not even only that this way of thinking cuts us off from the fullness that is art. From the point of view of our neoliberal overlords, this is not a bug, it's a feature. This is a way of keeping you compliant and docile. Yes. If we were able to understand that we are not vermin fit only to be crushed, we are kings yeah. and queens. Gods. We are gods and the world belongs to us because we belong to the world. If we could really understand that, I'm not saying believe that. I'm saying understand it because it is true. If we could understand that, we would be unstoppable and we would be uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. One of the things about a mass society like ours, one of the problems is that your little acts, your little deeds start to feel rather inconsequential and almost completely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Well, I was just, um, actually, Leslie was reading me this wonderful article or blog post by a guy who's, I can't remember his name now, but he was basically talking about how politics has been completely distorted in the U.S. through the advent of infotainment and round-the-clock yes. news and those, basically those entrenched networks that each have, you know, their loyalties and then f filter right. the news through that. So- what he's realized is that people today, you'll have an American come up to you. And I think the same thing is true in Canada. Someone will come to you and says, I'm really into politics. And then you mm. ask them, okay, name me 10 congressmen. And of course they can't. They only know the players that the news uh, networks have told us are the important players. So right. the real business of politics, which is municipal, local, regional, is completely overlooked by people who claim to be really into politics. But that's where the politics happens. <laughs> that's where the biggest, yeah. the changes that are most tangible to you would be at the municipal level where a street can change names or something can happen, right? Something tangible. And then from there, you build your way perhaps up to the federal level. But a real engagement with politics has to be an engagement with your locality, with yourself. It begins your, at your front door. Exactly. So- we don't live in that reality. We live in a fantasy that's fed to us by our neoliberal overlords. 
And unfortunately, their ideology has trickled down into other areas of life, specifically in this context when it comes to discussing art. Because the argument made by certain people that an artwork should serve to uphold and support a particular set of views as to how society should be governed, as to how people should be treated, the people who make the argument that only such art is acceptable, that art that might seem, at least in terms of the opinions that it expresses through its through itself, that seems to allow for ways of being, ways of existing that are anathema to us, the idea that those works of art should be banned or condemned, it's the same mentality. It's a utilitarian mentality. It means that yes. art is subordinated to a kind of moralism yep. which should dominate. Whereas in fact, again, that assumes a human nature we all can all understand. That assumes that we all know what the facts are. That assumes that we can actually contain the universe in our heads and make judgments as to what's right and wrong. Although I'm not saying that we can't make those judgments. I'm just saying that we can't make those judgments at least when it comes to expressing the aesthetic. I think that that type of censure of art is just as bad as Macaulay's idea that Plato and Aristotle should be ignored because they didn't contribute to the, the development of like of, of the faucet. Of like modern indoor yeah. plumbing or some like, shit. Yeah, central you know? heating. So, and this will sound rather maybe elitist or even like a dandyish way of for us to think. Like it'll sound like we're being... Very fantasy eclair. Yeah, very fantasy, very Wildean <laughs> in our like detachment from the concerns of the world. But I think Wild is the perfect example and the proof that this is not the case. Uh, Wild's writings on socialism, on society, are some of the most profound. And all of the cool Marxist dudes writing today and dudettes, people like Timothy Morton, uh, Zizek, will often refer to Oscar Wilde's rather eccentric take on socialism as kind of like finding the truth in socialism, right? He located mm -hmm. something very important. And yet, at the same time, he made his arguments for art. So I think that we need to think twice before we see, like we've often said that art should be apolitical. But of course, it's apolitical in the same sense as a mountain range is apolitical. Like the right. Alps are apolitical, but they have tremendous political consequence. So if we live in a universe that is indeed a pleroma, a fullness, if we live in a sacramental universe, the consequences for that, for politics, are incalculable. Exactly. And if art serves to reveal that truth, then art doesn't need to underwrite this or that particular historically contingent opinion in order to reveal that truth. And also, I think that if you accept that we live in a sacramental universe that is also a fullness, that automatically discredits the views that you would want, you would want to discredit anyways, racism, sexism, and that sort of thing. Those things stop yeah. making sense in that case. Exactly. Yeah. So, And I'll tell you, I sometimes abuse academia in this show, complaining about academia, while, of course, drawing a paycheck from it. Um, <laughs> That's what but, every uh, academic does, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in which respect, I am entirely typical of my tribe. But if I had to say there was one thing that I wish would change in academia, it is this. The idea that we're articulating here, that it is not a consoling fiction to say, that we exist in fullness, that we matter, that we are wonderful beings surrounded by mysteries of all kinds. My complaint is that such an assertion in any academic context you care to name in the contemporary humanities, probably it's different in like in a religious schools, but certainly in the secular humanities where I make my home, such an utterance would be considered naive and sentimental and self-serving. The idea would be, it's like, well, you know, I'm sure that's a very consoling fiction. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's very comforting to you to imagine such a thing. But I, an intellectual, a brave modern intellectual, am able to stare into the void fearlessly and understand the true nihility of our existence. That takes no courage whatsoever to say that. Yeah. When you say that, you are serving capitalism. You are serving the neoliberal order. 
maybe you are disconscious of it. In fact, almost certainly are because my fellow academic humanists to a person all disdain capitalism. And yet you are part of a power structure that is taking the truth and insisting it's a kind of a lie, inserting its own untruth and insisting that this is the foundational truth of the universe. And the consequence of that is, as I say, to keep us docile, to keep us controllable. It is not, in fact, a comforting and easy thing to imagine the human being in fullness. Machen's own fiction draws upon the horror of living in that fullness, just as sin and sanctity can be two faces of the same thing. Likewise, the fullness that Machen is talking about, the fullness that is art, is as easily a horrifying thing as it is a, a comfortable thing. In fact, rather more likely to be a horrifying thing. And yet it is a horror that liberates. Tremendum et fascinance, right? Exactly. Rudolf Otto's idea of terrible and fascinating at the same time. Yes. And we petty bourgeois functionaries of the intellect, civil servants of art, <laughs> have the fucking nerve to look at that terrible beauty, that incomprehensible and overwhelming truth, and to say, well, I suppose it must be very comforting to believe such things and to use the shame, the fear of ever being called naive, being caught out in a naive utterance to extort our compliance with this inhuman, anti-human lie. Fuck that shit. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>